Okay, let's take a breath. It's a busy morning. You're all uh, probably a bit wearying now, wilting a little bit. Uh, Where have we come from uh, in the book of Philippians? Well, first, if you were here last night, we were considering how the gospel, how Paul is sharing with this young church, how the gospel should be at the center of their Christian lives. The gospel is the center. Uh, Then this morning, we were considering how the gospel is our pattern, it's our pattern to live like Jesus and therefore live in unity. Um, And now we're going to consider uh, taking, again, a big chunk of the letter, um, which probably frustratingly we'll not be able to to look at every verse in detail, but considering how the gospel gives you direction, how the gospel gives you direction. So the gospel's our center, the gospel's our pattern, and the gospel gives you direction. So look, let's pray and ask for God's help uh, as we look uh, at this, uh, this chapter, this wonderful chapter uh, together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can hear you speak to us through your word. Uh, and we do pray now that the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write these words so long ago, we pray that he would be active among us now, that he would bring these words to, to life, that we would... Uh, not just understand them, and we pray that we would, but we pray also that we'd, we would feel their, uh, their reality and their relevance to us, we pray, as we sit and consider these things. Please speak to us, uh, and as you do, please change us uh, as we see a glimpse again of the glory of Christ, and we are inspired to be like him. And so we just ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's, uh, I want you to picture the scene. It's, it's Mexico City. Uh, it's 1968, and it's the very, very last event of the Mexico Olympics. Uh, so the very last event of any Olympics is the, the men's marathon um, before the, the closing ceremony and so on. So uh, the men's marathon has been running now for over two hours. Uh, the crowd are eagerly awaiting the first runner coming into the stadium uh, and Mamo Walda, an Ethiopian runner, comes running in. He's the first. He does the, the, the glory lap, uh, and he finishes, breaks the tape, two hours, 20 minutes, uh, and wins the gold medal uh, of the Mexico Olympics that year. However, way behind him, miles, literally miles behind him, uh, is another runner called John Stephen Aquari. Now, he became quite famous uh, because he too finished the race, but he was nowhere near the front. He was nowhere near the front. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he too was a, a world-class runner. He had actually beat Walda uh, in a previous race. He was a world-class runner in his own right. He wasn't just making up the numbers. Uh, he was, at that point, at the start of the race, he was African champion. Uh, but about 18 miles in, he had a very bad fall where he wrecked his shoulder, he hurt his head, and he very badly damaged his knee. And uh, the, the officials rush in to try to usher him out of the way and off the course, but he's having none of it. Uh, he manages to get an old t- bit of bandage or old bit of T-shirt, and he straps up his, his damaged knee, and he keeps going. He keeps going. The extra eight miles, wincing with every step. 
By the time that he actually made it into the stadium, most of the crowd had gone. Uh, but those who had stayed, uh, news had got out that this guy was, uh, was still coming. And so there's a massive roar as he comes into the stadium and hobbles around the final lap and collapses over the finish line. Uh, he was interviewed by um, a, fi- a, film, a young American filmmaker uh, after, after the Olympics. And he was asked this question simply, look, why did you bother? Why did you bother? You know, you're, never, you know you're, never, you're just in pain. Uh, you're not going to win anything. Why, why do it? And he said this, my country sent me 5,000 miles not to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. And that picture of someone with their eyes fixed on the finish line, it's painful, but I am going to get there is the image, I think, that Paul has at the center of this chapter 3. It's, it's there if you spot it in, chapter, in verse 12, in verse 13, and verse 14. Let me read just verse 14 to you. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Paul pictures the co-Christian life as a race. It's a race. It's like a marathon race. It's not a sprint because it's long and grueling. And what he says we are to do is that the Christian life gives you direction, points you to a finish line and to a prize. And that is how you're to view the Christian life. And so what I want to do uh, for the next few minutes, uh, if you'll indulge me, is I want to take that metaphor that Paul gives us And I want us to use that as the lens through which we look at this chapter. And we'll look at, we'll look back, we'll look at the beginning of the race, how to start the Christian race, uh, which I think is verses 1 to 11. Uh, We then have running the race, and then we have at the end, finishing the race. So first, uh, verses 1 to 11, starting the race. How do we start the race? with confidence in Christ. That's how you start the race, the Christian race. Paul begins this section by giving a warning. Uh, In the original, uh, he actually says, look out, beware, three times. Uh, So you get a triple warning to safeguard Christians. Uh, Finally, brothers, um, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, It's no trouble for me to write this to you. Uh, to write the same things again. It's a safeguard for you. Verse 2, watch out. Beware. Beware of those dogs. Beware of those evildoers. Beware of those mutilators of the flesh. Now, who are these guys? Who are these folks that are described as as dogs? For example, um, we think dog, cuddly, cute, kind of household animal, right? Dog, lovely. Dogs are lovely. In the ancient world, dogs were not cute household animals. Dogs were you know, running in the streets wild. Uh, Dogs, when they got uh, a chance to get something weak and vulnerable, they would attack it. And so these guys are dogs in the sense that they are attacking the weak and the unstable and the vulnerable. They're doing evil. They are mutilators of the flesh. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about a vicious street gang uh, in Rome? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about a bunch of escaped convicts that are armed and dangerous? Please don't approach Well, actually, when you read on, you discover that he's actually talking about church-going religious types. 
Again, there's a bit of debate over who he's talking about. He's probably talking about a bunch of Jewish converts who were claiming to be Christians, but were then saying to be really confident, however, that you're right before God. You need to obey the Mosaic law. That's what he goes on to talk about. Um, Paul makes sarcastic reference to what they're teaching uh, about uh, here uh, and makes particularly sarcastic reference to this idea of circumcision. So they're obviously promoting circumcision. Um, Now, a friend of mine told me recently about his family devotions that he's doing. He's trying to be systematic. He's trying to be faithful uh, to, to read the Bible with his wife and his kids every day. And so after tea, they spend a couple of minutes reading the Bible and saying a prayer together. Um, and he's trying to be systematic with that. But with slightly younger kids, that, that brings its challenges, right? That brings its challenges. So he's reading through Genesis, and now he gets to Genesis. He was telling me he got to Genesis 17, right? Genesis 17, about circumcision, right? And so he's reading this with his little 10-year-old boy. Uh, his 10-year-old boy says, you know, you can imagine, Daddy, uh, what, what is circumcision. And um, he sort of panics a wee bit uh, and does something like that, sort of fills for time. Uh, what, uh, uh, well, it's, um, it's when... It's, and then he just decided to go for it. He decided to go for it. He just said, it's when you cut the skin off the end of your, uh, your willy. And he said he saw the shock <laughs> on this little boy's face. And an instinctive kind of (laughs) movement of his hands. And then he went, well, you know, it was in in Abraham's day, it was a a sign uh, that you're part of God's people. It was a, 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 a picture of your trust in God's promises. It was the sign that God gave. Um, And then they went on, the rest of the story. And then at the end, his, the, the, my friend, his dad, uh, asked, any, any other questions? And he could see his son processing, uh, and his son asked, Daddy, to be part of God's people today, do you, do you have to be circumcised? And that's no, 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 no. Things have changed now with the coming of Jesus. That's not the sign that you're part of the people of God anymore. And then he said at the end, when, when they were all praying, he said his son prayed the most heartfelt, joyful prayer of his little life. <laughs> Thank you, God, that we don't have to be circumcised. <laughs> now, except for moments like that, except for moments like that, we don't even ask questions about circumcision, do we? It's just not a question that would ever come up in, in a question and answer session on a Sunday afternoon at, at the castle. No one's going to say, by the way, do Christians have to be circumcised? You know, it's just not a question we ask. Uh, but this was a big question. If you read through the New Testament, this was a big, this was a question on almost everybody's lips in every church congregation. Uh, in that first generation of believers. Because most of the first converts were Jews. They were Jews. For them, this command to be circumcised, part of God's word. They believe it's all God's word. Uh, And 
It's part of our ethnic identity. And therefore, if Jews, or sorry, Gentiles want to join the church, become part of the people of God, then sh- surely they should be circumcised, shouldn't they? That should, that should just be normal, should it not? And certainly there was a bunch of Jewish uh, converts, or those who claimed to be converts, as we'll see in a minute, um, were at least teaching that. And, that's, and Paul, look, we, Paul doesn't go into it here in any detail, but certainly in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans, he goes into it in more detail. And Paul says, no, no, that is not the sign anymore that marks us out uh, as the people of God. We are the circumcision, Paul says in, in uh, verse 2 there. In other words, we by faith are marked out already as the people of God. That's the defining mark, uh, is, is faith in Christ. Paul is very clear uh, that he is not pro-circumcision. And that's why he refers to these guys as mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. In other words, they are performing needless cosmetic surgery, mutilating the flesh. Not necessary. It's not uh, the defining mark that, or that marks out the people of God today. But this is a symptom of a bigger problem here. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. And that's what Paul then picks up on and deals with in detail. Um, I don't know if you know anything about watches. I quite like mechanical watches. I'm a bit of a geek for that. Uh, and one way that you can spot a fake watch, a knockoff watch, um, one that's not really of any value, really, it's by looking at the second hand. If it ticks, It's just a cheap quartz movement. Probably cost about a pound. But if it sweeps nice and gently around, it's expensive. Okay, so if you want to look at someone else's watch and you see that the second hand sweeping around, not ticking, just just note that. Uh, That's an expensive watch, okay? Now, Paul is saying similarly, similarly, if you are interested in spotting a fake religion, there's one place you look. Here's the one place you look. How do you spot it? How do you spot it? This is a, this is a, this is a sham religion. It's not, not the real thing at all. Paul says you look where that teaching, where that religion encourages you to place your confidence. That's the defining mark. Where does it encourage you to place your confidence? And, and that's a big issue. Paul returns to the, the, the idea of confidence in verse, uh, in verse 3 and 4. Uh, three times. The issue is, for these uh, religious leaders, these quasi-Christian converts, is that they were actually saying, yeah, look, it's okay, look, great, uh, you're trusting in Jesus, you know, that's great, well done you, but actually what you really need now is to obey the Mosaic Law. That's what you really need. That's where your confidence ultimately needs to be placed. And at that point, Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul goes on. Uh, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, that's, that's the defining mark. What's confidence in the flesh for a false, false religion? Confidence in the flesh. It's actually confidence in yourself and in my performance and what I have done. 
That's what these guys are teaching. Yeah, you trust Jesus, great, but then you need to get on with the business of obeying the law. Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. And he says, look, by the way, if we're going to play the lesser-known Saturday afternoon game, board game of confidence in the flesh, look, I'm always going to win that. Always. And so he lists off his impeccable record. Uh, if anyone had reason to be confident, uh, to have confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Look, Paul has a stellar um, Jewish ancestry going right back. He's got his family tree traced right back to the, the patriarchs. Uh, Paul has a stellar record. But more than that, it's not just his ancestry that's impeccable, but also his, his performance in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, he's not saying that he was sinlessly perfect, but he did everything the law required, absolutely everything. So when he did sin, he offered the right sacrifice at the right place at the right time, faultless with regards to the law. Paul's point is, if anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, but as Christians, we don't even play that game. We don't even play that game. We put no confidence in the flesh. In fact, he was on to say, verse 7, and whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things, that wonderful record of my ancestry, uh, that wonderful record of my performance, actually now, rather than in the, the column, the plus column, I actually have moved all of those into the, the minus column. So think of someone who has plastic jewelry, right? You've been given plastic jewelry. Um, you know, it's got the spray chrome on it. Looks shiny. It's, it's, no one notices it. They don't look very closely. Uh, and you quite enjoy wearing it, uh, whether it's a ring or a necklace or whatever. But imagine then someone gives you a real diamond ring or a real pearl necklace. Well, in comparison, what you previously thought was fine, well, it's now just exposed. And by comparison, this is just plastic tat. It's rubbish. I should just throw that out. Because I've got the real thing. I've got this. Paul's saying, as he's become a Christ, when he's become a Christian, he's had that same radical change of perspective. All these other things that he used to value, used to trust in, have confidence in that God would somehow be impressed with those things. Well, now that he has Christ, that's just rubbish. It's just rubbish in comparison. Compared to the surpassing worth, value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. He looks at all these other things, all this other stuff, and by comparison, they're worthless and useless and rubbish. Paul, in verse 9, then goes on to explain for us why Jesus is so valuable. Verse 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. 
In verses 9 and 10, I wonder, did you spot it? There's, there's two sorts of righteousness. Two sorts uh, of righteousness. First is righteousness that comes from the law, and that's my own. Righteousness that comes from the law, and that's my own. And then secondly, there's righteousness that comes from God, and that's a gift from Christ. So, um, we were thinking a little earlier with the book review about the Reformers. Uh, and so the Reformers talked, uh, particularly Luther and Calvin, talked about the alien righteousness of Christ. It's, it's not something that we have. It's something that comes from outside us and is given to us as a gift. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So there's two, sor- there's two sources of righteousness, either righteousness from yourself or righteousness from God. There's two reasons for righteousness, either my obedience or Christ's work. And then there's two ways of earning that righteousness. Either it's a gift from Christ or I earn it. You see? It's a sharp choice then. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to go with their confidence and their righteousness or Are you going to go with the righteousness that is a gift from Christ to be received by faith in Jesus' sacrificial death, uh, in his trusting in him as the risen and reigning Lord? And Paul is saying, when you compare the two, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. No contest. A righteousness that would come from me and my performance, well, that's like the plastic jewelry. That's just rubbish rubbish compared to the worth and the value and the beauty of the righteousness that's come from Christ. So think for a moment then uh, of, we've got the mountains in view here, Uh, think for a moment of a climber uh, and he's had a fall and he's broken his leg, Uh, he's lost some of his equipment and he's barely hanging on to the cliff face. Now, I want you to imagine that he has a choice. He has a choice. He can either try to carry on climbing himself, trying to muster himself up, you know, you are strong, you've got good experience, you've got enough equipment left, you can make it, come on, come on. Or he can accept the sling that has been lowered down by the helicopter right beside him. But in order to get the benefit of that sling and that rescue, what you got to do is you got to let go of the cliff wall. You got to let go of your own equipment and you've got to admit your need and grab the sling. And that's the choice each one of us has to make. Are we going to continue to trust in ourselves and in our own righteousness or do we want to be, as Paul says, found in him? Do we want to have our confidence placed in Christ rather than in ourselves? And Paul is saying that is the only wise choice, the only wise choice. As we were just singing, when Jesus comes with trumpet sounds, oh, may I then be in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. You see, that's the confidence we've got on offer. The 
free gift of total righteousness in Christ. You see, that's how you start the Christian life. That's how you start. So you start the race by moving confidence from yourself and your own performance and placing it in Christ. That is how you begin the Christian life. And if you're here, I don't know you, I don't know most of the people here, but if you haven't done that yet, this would be a great weekend to do it. Why wait? According to Paul, look, this is a no-brainer. Trust in Christ. But the truth is, as we continue to run the race, we are tempted again and again, if we're honest, to let our confidence be deviated to something else. Is that not true? And so what makes me feel today that God is pleased with me? Where is your confidence right now? And there are times, if we're totally honest, that we begin to think God is pleased with me today. In my case, maybe because I I, I think I led the church okay this week. I think I preached a sermon that was okay this week. Uh, I think I was pretty obedient this week. God must be happy with me then. But do you see when I'm answering that, having that little mental thought, where is my confidence? Where's my confidence? It's in me. And again, the challenge Paul has for me, has for you, is to say, look at Christ. Treasure him. Put your confidence again in him. Because all those other things... Well, I see they'll fluctuate up and down, won't you? There'll be some days you are obedient, some days you're not. Your assurance will be all over the place. But when you remember that your right standing or your righteousness before God does not depend on you, but depends on Christ, even if you stumble and fall, you are declared righteous in him, dressed in his righteousness alone. That's how we start the Christian race, with confidence in the right place in Christ. But then Paul continues, uh, we are to continue the Christian race from verses 12 on. Um, so, sorry, from, verses t- from verse 10 on. Uh, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation uh, in his suffering becoming like him into death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Look, Paul is, is not saying, I, look, I don't know if I'm going to get the resurrection of the dead or not. Somehow, you know, it's all a bit, I just, I don't know if I'm going to get it. No, what he's saying is not, I don't know whether or not I'll attain in the resurrection. He's saying, I don't know exactly how I'll attain in the, attain to the resurrection. I don't know if I'll be executed. I don't know if I'll die of old age. I don't know if Jesus will come back again. But somehow, one of those ways, I will share in the resurrection. But now, in the meantime, what is my desire? Because when you become a Christian, when you place your confidence in Christ, you're, giving the, you're given the gift of righteousness, but you're also given the gift of these new desires. As the Spirit comes and dwells with you, you've got these new desires. And what do you desire? What do you want to know? You want to know Jesus more? You want to know Jesus better? Remember the prayer Paul prayed for them uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? He prayed that they would 
Love Christ more by knowing him more. Knowing someone in the Bible isn't just knowing stuff about them. Uh, So it's not, I know someone because I've met them once and I know their general uh, height and build, hair color, eye color. Uh, Yeah, I I know them. No, in the Bible, to, to know someone is this personal, relational encounter that you have with them that actually changes you, that actually changes you. So in older versions of the Bible, for example, uh, we read of Adam knew his wife Eve. He didn't just know her hair color and her height. And, no, he, he, knew, he, he has an encounter with her that results in children. There's a change, dramatic change to their lives. Paul doesn't want to just know more trivia about Jesus. He wants this personal encounter with Jesus that will change him, that will change him. That's, that's what he's then pursuing. I want to know Jesus more. There's always more to know. And as I get to know him, I will, be, I will love him more. I will, and my life will be changed. What will be changed? Well, he will know more of the power of the Lord Jesus working in his life. Uh, verse 10. He'll know the power of the Lord Jesus working in his life. And then he'll also want to become like Jesus in his death, which is what we actually considered in the last session. What was Jesus like in his death? Humble, obedient, self-sacrificial, other-centered, outward-focused. He was all those things. I want to be more like that then. I want to get to know Jesus better. Again, not that I've already obtained all this. He uses this Um, this athletic imagery again, not that I've already obtained all this, already arrived uh, at my goal. I haven't been made perfect yet. I'm I'm a work in progress. I have a long way to go, uh, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And notice Paul's language there. He's saying that Jesus has taken hold of him for a purpose. For a purpose. Jesus has effectively, like a headhunter, picked him, chosen him, commissioned him, and pointed him in a direction and set him for a goal. And he's done that with all of us. He's done that with all of us. Jesus has chosen you. If you're a Christian, Jesus has intervened in your life, opened your eyes to see the truth, softened your heart to feel your need and sin and to feel his love and the truth uh, of his forgiveness and hope. He's intervened, and he has set you on a direction. Now, uh, there's lots of angst uh, as folks think about God's guidance for my life. What should I be doing? Uh, what, is, what is my life for? What, should, what, should, you know, what career should I be doing? Who should I be marrying? Where should I live? What church should I go to? Um, I think this actually helps with that. Not that it gives you any concrete answers at one level, but it does help. Because what is the goal for which Jesus has called you out? The goal is so that you would know him and that you'd be like him. 
That's the goal, ultimately, that you'd know him and ultimately be like him. That's what Paul is pressing on for. And so in all the questions you've got, we all have about our future, you know, should I change career? Should I get married? Where should I live? What should I do? Should I go on foreign mission? Uh, Whatever it is. What you need to factor in, what I need to factor in to our thinking in all of those questions is what will allow me, what option in all of those areas will allow me get to know Jesus better and become more like him? Who should I marry? Well, I should only marry someone who's going to help me with those two things, get to know Jesus better and become more like him. If I can't find anybody like that, then actually I'm better off single. Because the real goal is not my personal relational fulfillment. The real goal, the ultimate goal, is to know Jesus more and be more like him. We need to be aware then of competing agendas. We thought we saw uh, we looked at that a little bit uh, on Friday last night, Friday night, um, where we considered another competing agenda for us very often uh, that Paul somehow managed to to overcome as the gospel came in and was central in his life. So our agenda often, our goal often, is not this knowing Jesus more, becoming more like Him, but our goal is often comfort. What will make me more comfortable? That's often the goal that we're running towards. Or popularity, reputation. That's, I'm passionately concerned that people like me. That's my real goal. We need to be aware of those personal competing agendas. This is the goal, to know Jesus more and be more like him. And there's other competing agendas that come in from outside. Um, I remember very clearly uh, reading, the, I had the opportunity while working in uh, Leamington Spa, work universities just down the road, uh, and I met every Friday with a very gifted guy who was a student studying languages uh, to read the Bible. Uh, we read through John's Gospel over the year. It was great, and he was very gifted. He was very gifted. He had, a, no doubt, a wonderful career lying before him. But he loved Jesus. He wanted to know him better. I wanted to be more like him. I wanted to, to live for him and love him. And he was gifted not only intellectually, he was also quite gifted relationally. He was good with people. And he was a pretty good communicator, actually. And so in the end, he, as we discussed it and we thought about it, we actually became persuaded that actually God was guiding him to, be, to win a pastoral ministry. And so he left what was no doubt a glittering career uh, and he wanted to do pastor ministry in another country. He was studying German, went over to study theology in Germany, and is now church planting in Germany. But his parents are not believers. And so when his parents heard his plan, they said, what a waste. What a waste of all your training. What a waste of all your skills. You see, these competing agendas come not only from inside, but also from outside. But here is your goal. Like Joseph Stephen Akwari, fix your gaze on that goal and steer your life in that direction. 
Starting the race, confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. Running the race, knowing Christ more. Lastly, finishing the race, which is being with Christ. Being with Christ. Let me read verses uh, from verse um, 18 on for this. Uh, For I have often told you, Before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their goal is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul says, uh, encourages them um, in verse 17 to, to follow his example, an example of others like him who are pressing on towards the goal of knowing Jesus more and becoming more like him. And you need to follow those examples because there are other examples out there that are unhealthy. And then he returns to uh, these other, this other group. Uh, I Again, there's debate. We don't have time to go into the, the pros and cons, I, I, think, I think this is the same group that he was speaking about at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, those who were claiming to be Christians, but actually under the bonnet were really had their confidence in obeying the Jewish law. Uh, and so those who have their God is their stomach. We know that in the, the Jewish law, there were all sorts of food laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. Uh, their glory was in their shame uh, I think that's probably a bit of a sarcastic dig about circumcision. It's sh- something hidden, shameful, and yet they seem obsessed about it. Um, their glory is in their shame, and ultimately, if, if their confidence is in the wrong place, then ultimately their end is destruction. So follow, those, follow the example of those who are wanting to know Christ more and become more like him. Follow them. Beware of this other example, these other examples out there, for your citizenship is in heaven. We thought about that in the last session, didn't we? Um, Philippi is a Roman colony, so it's a, in many ways it's a little, bit of, a little bit of Rome right in the middle of Greece. And so they lived out a Roman lifestyle, Roman clothes, Roman customs, Roman money, Roman taxes. Uh, they, they lived in a Roman way in the midst of Greece. And so Paul is saying that we are to do the same as Christians. We are to live out our heavenly citizenship. We're to be a legal. Each one of our local churches uh, as a group of believers is to be like a little bit of heaven, a little outpost of heaven on earth. That's what we're to be like. And as we do that, we keep motivated to keep going by looking forward, a bit like uh, our friend uh, um, Mr. Akwari, we keep looking forward for what's ahead. We eagerly await a saviour from there, that is from the home country, from the home country who's going to come. We eagerly await uh, a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What is your future like? What future are you looking forward to? I think if 
you've watched any Philadelphia ads ever, uh, then most of us think there's kind of pan pipe music playing. You've got to wear a nighty. Uh, seemingly they like white a lot. Uh, and sit on a cloud, kind of floating around. It looks incredibly boring. But notice that's not what Paul has in mind for your future. Your future, my future, if we are confident in Christ, we are marked out as his people and waiting for his return, it's incredibly physical. It's physical. Jesus is coming, and he is going to establish his rule here on earth. Finally, a a kingdom of peace and justice. Finally, this world as it was always meant to be. And finally, we will be all that we were meant to be in this physical world. If you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it's not so much that, that we go to heaven, but the heavenly city comes down to earth. The future is the new heavens and the new earth, not some floaty spiritual existence away somewhere else. Jesus is really coming again, and he will establish his rule, a rule of power. He will have the ability to put all wars to an end. He will have the ability to sort everything out, and he will sort us out as well. And finally, we'll get to the finish line of being like Jesus fully. In one sense, as Christians, we go against the flow, don't we? We go against the flow. You get to talk with classmates and colleagues or uh, friends or family, and you talk with them about who are not yet Christians, talk with them about their hopes and their dreams, and you'll find they're always focused on the here and now. The here and now. In one sense, we are to go against the flow. We are to be thinking about more than the here and now, beyond the here and now. And that is going to mean that we are citizens of heaven here. It means that our allegiance will be different, our values will be different, the way we do relationships will be different, the what we hope for the future will be different. We will be, in one sense, going against the flow. But what I want you to see here is, in one sense, in a profound sense, we are actually, as Christians, going with the flow, with the ultimate flow of this world and the ultimate flow of history. Where is history flowing? What is the cosmic plan? The cosmic plan is that Jesus will come again, and he will restore and renew this created world and we will get to be part of it, and it will be physical, and we'll get to run and jump and sing and swim and paint and everything perfectly with the right motives in the right way, and it will be truly wonderful. That is where history is going, and in one sense, as Christians, we are to go with the flow of history. As I finish then, let me tell you about Florence Chadwick. Anyone ever heard of Florence Chadwick? She was an open water swimmer, brilliant swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Um, And on the 4th of uh, July, 1952, she decided to undertake the challenge to swim from Catalina Island to the coast uh, of 
California, which is 26 miles. Just think about that, a marathon distance in the water swimming. And so she went, and there was a few support boats, and her mum was in one of the boats, and there was a crew to help her and so on. But she was swimming, and she swam, and she swam, and she swam, and she swam for 15 hours straight. Think about that. 15 hours straight. And then thick fog descended. And suddenly she can't see the finish line anymore. And suddenly, because she can't see anything, you tend to focus on your own body and how much pain it's in. Uh, And you begin to be filled with doubt. And she was dispirited. And in the end, she had to ask to be pulled pulled out of the water. She was pulled out of the water and pulled into the boat. And then she discovered that she was three quarters of a mile from the finish line. But two months later, she tried again. She got in, swam. Remarkable lady. Uh, got in, swam again, 20, 15 hours, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and again, would you, would you believe it, that a thick fog descended again? But this time she made it to the finish line. And she was asked, what was the difference between the two? And she said, this time, the difference between the two was, although I couldn't see the finish line, I visualized the finish line. And that enabled me to keep going to the end. We cannot see the finish line. Not with our physical eyes, not yet. But what we are called to do as the community of God's people is to remind each other constantly of the reality of the finish line so that we can visualize it. Look, it's really easy here to think positively about living the Christian life, surrounded by Christians, singing great Christian songs, reading the Bible. It's fun and it's easy. It's not so easy when you're in your workplace, when you're in your office or you're in the hospital or in the school or wherever it is you are, surrounded by those who don't share your values. And what you're called to do is visualize the finish line and keep going and keep going. Why? Because it'll be worth it. It will be worth it. Because then you will be with Jesus and you will be like Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we know we are so tempted to, to lose sight of reality, um, to grasp uh, for what is easy, uh, to grasp for what is temporal and uh, physical rather than what is spiritual and eternal. And so we pray, please, that you would open our eyes, that with the eyes of faith, that we would see more of the Lord Jesus in his beauty and in his glory, in his sovereignty, in his compassion. And we pray, please, that you would open our eyes, uh, spiritually speaking, that we might be able to visualize the finish line, that one day he is coming again, all will bow before him, and that we will be part of his wonderful eternal kingdom. So, Father, we pray, please, that we might chart our course of life with that ultimate destination in mind. 
Please strengthen and equip us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.